Oi, 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 oi. IGA oi. is shopping nice. IGA where the price oi. is right. Seaford North oi. IGA oi. for your groceries oi. and liquor. IGA oi. Express, oi. there's nothing oi. quicker. I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the unceded Aboriginal land of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Tonight we'll return again to the topic of the Karam Karam Swamp, an ancient and dynamic ecosystem, remnants of which are protected across the Edithvale Seaford wetlands. There is archaeological evidence of Aboriginal occupation, settlement and agriculture in the wetlands 2,000 years prior to colonisation. This was the moment in geological time when sea levels fell and the ancient swamp was formed. However, while water levels were higher, about 7,000 years ago, Bunurong peoples paddled on wooden canoes through the shallow tidal estuary collecting mollusks. We acknowledge their ongoing connection to lands, waters and sky. It's raining and storming again this evening, or at least it was a bit earlier tonight. And the topic of water is no doubt on listeners' minds. Last night, part of the Long Beach experienced mild flooding, blocked drains and even water ingress into homes. This evening's conversation comes as a pure timely coincidence. Lou Lennon, Director of Sustainable Water at Oricon, joins me live in the studio. Lou has worked in the Victorian water industry for over 20 years, with a technical background in groundwater resource management and groundwater surface water interaction, she now focuses on providing integrated water management solutions. In recent years, Lou has led several projects including reimagining Mooney Ponds Creek, developing integrated water management strategies and waterway and wetlands design for stormwater management solutions. She is passionate about managing water sustainability in urban environments to facilitate growth while also benefiting the community and environment. Lou has lived in Edithvale for 10 years and she thoroughly enjoys the lifestyle offered by our beautiful beach and wetlands. And this is week three for three of the Locals trilogy. Welcome, Lou, to the program. You're my third Edithvale local in a row, so go, Edie. (laughs) That's excellent. Thanks for having me, Alana. It's it's a pleasure. Um, really looking forward to our conversation tonight, and a, a funny a funny coincidence indeed, but a really important topic. It to is, it. isn't it? Because yeah, I guess just we're going to get more and more of this hot days and um, and storm events and much more variable climate as we move forward. So it's happening now. Absolutely. Well, before mm. we dive in, there's a question I like to ask all my guests on the show. And that's, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Um, my earliest memory of a building, it would have to be my family home, which probably wasn't a very impressive building, but it did have a big backyard. So I shared a bedroom until I moved out of home. So there was, I guess, just lots of reasons to be away from the home, either outside the backyard, enjoying the sunshine or outside. But I guess my um, 
you know, a, a memory of an impressive building is, and, and an early memory like a childhood memory is the art gallery in Melbourne and that waterfall wall. Yes. And just, um, which interestingly that it's water, but I, that is one of my early memories of just being amazed by that as a building and that water could flow down the window. And it still does, doesn't it, I think? Yeah. Roy Ground's masterpiece. And it's one of the, probably the most fav- favourite things of visitors when they get welcomed in. Oh, it's amazing. Such a good textural experience. It's great. So not surprised. You're a, sounds like you started off as a water baby and yeah. continued ever since yeah. and, and made it your career. Yep. How, did, how did you come to be, being an expert in, in groundwater and water manage, sustainable water management? Well, so I started, I've always had a passion for the environment. So I like just, and I, I really, I under, like I like geology. I liked, um, I guess I like geology and understanding how landforms kind of became the way how they are and geography. I, I love reading maps. Me weirdly. too. <laughs> Me too. And um, so I started, um, I just did a Bachelor of Science and they had an environmental kind of bent to it and um, at that was at Monash and I had a professor there, um, Bear McPhail, he's no longer there. But So I kind of like geology but it gets a bit boring, just the rocks, but I really liked kind of understanding how water moved through the rocks and the chemistry and water quality and that you can use it as a, as a resource and I also like that... I'm not, um, I'm not, a, I'm a bit creative person and so uh, while I quite like science, um, I don't really like it when there's a hard answer being right or wrong. So You <laughs> like not, the design process yeah. more. And so groundwater is that, it's a bit art and science. So there's not a lot that you, you know about the groundwater. We, we drill holes in the ground but it's a bit like um, trying to read a novel if you're just hole-punching it and trying to get what the story's about. You get all these layers and you've got to try and piece it together, but it never really makes sense. So I kind of like that you get to make it up and hydrogeologists will always um, argue over anything. Like it's really hard to get a consistent view. That's, between. that's a very important point, that maps that are subterranean are yeah. a best guess. Yeah, absolutely. They're not a concrete fact. No. And we mentioned this on the show, we discussed this with listeners that all maps, all drawings contain a bias. Yes, yeah, they do. Or do you do straight maps these days with GPS and everything? I guess they're pretty accurate. But Until Google takes you the wrong way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it's amazing what they can do with maps now. But um, yeah, I think geology maps is, and hydrogeology maps, they have them in a few different areas. I just, I just like, they're pretty cool and pretty mysterious you never really know what's going on and very very large scale like it doesn't really get that you never really know what you're going to intersect whenever you whenever you drill a hole it's always a bit like oh what are we going to get as architects we always love the color coding that geologists use particularly geological maps of the moon um, oh. have been precedents and references if only for the colors or the style of drawing Oh, really? So there's no shame in looking to other disciplines for a bit of inspiration yeah. how people do drawings. But it's a very important conversation, I think, to discuss groundwater and to begin to open up this, this topic because we now as architects, as practitioners, have a responsibility and it's part of our national competency standards to engage with First Nations people, engage with First Nations communities and also culture and 
there's many processes that people may go through or officers will go through in the creation of their reconciliation action plans or their own growth or development as practitioners. But eventually the hope is that people will come to a moment where they celebrate country. And one of these things that are to be thought about that we're encouraged to think about and learn about is groundwater. And because it's unseen, it's much, much harder for people to think about. So I'm really keen for us to talk about it and discuss bringing those things that are unseen into, into reality, into, yeah. into the more. And I think, yeah, cultural values are um, really – it's really cool these days how we're trying to tackle that and trying to understand that more. I don't think – you know, I think maybe it was probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago when the Water for Life came out and this, our Victorian state government started talking about cultural values for water – no one really knew what it meant and no one really knew how to um, how to embrace it and how to deal with it. And, it and it's taken a long time for us as an industry to understand what it means. Essentially it means an entitlement for the for the our First Nations people and um, for them to do what they want with it. Groundwater um, isn't probably as um, well well thought out I think is the surface water kind of aspect so there's the Yarra strategic plan now that has been um, done with First Nations people and there are wetlands all along that um, the Yarra River in the city and like they're really trying to embrace cultural values and they've done that with Wurundjeri people so they've got that at the heart of that whereas so I think it is much easier for the rivers when you when you can see that and but I guess the component in groundwater is that groundwater is linked to rivers. So groundwater sustains rivers. And, um, it's inextricably interconnected. Exactly. So, you know, groundwater sustains our um, Edith Vale Seaford Swamp. So I think, yeah, it's fundamentally, you know, the baseline for it and it provides a base flow all year round in, in a lot of cases. In some cases it's just seasonal but it's there when it's needed during the summer months. So when there's no rain, that's groundwater will sustain that. So I think um, it's, uh, it's a surface, wherever you've got a surface expression of water, being a river or a wetland, you can generally, groundwater will be there as well. And it's all these extra things we always need to think about, not just what's yeah. immediately obvious. Yeah. I wonder, do you think it will ever come to it in a place like in Australia as they have in New Zealand given national parks and significant bodies of water legal personhood? Oh, I don't know. It'd be nice if they did, wouldn't it? Can you? I can't imagine that in Australia. If you think about Australia as a whole nation, I can imagine some jurisdictions doing it. I can't imagine others. That's a nice hope. Let, let's yeah, centre that think, as, a, as a hope for the future. Yeah, exactly. I think water can be quite political and how it's managed in different states in New South Wales and Queensland, in particular the Murray-Darling Basin. Definitely. It's, you know. I was just going to say the Murray-Darling Basin and the burning of the, the basin draft plan in 2009 was very fiery, very contentious. Yeah. A lot of, lot of uh, co- conflict and also often misunderstanding about how much water gets used, how water rights get sold and allocated. And it's a challenge because it's people's livelihoods that they rely on an entitlement that they've been given, but it's unsustainable for the river. And we know that now, but we didn't know it then. But do you, 
people would then have to walk away from their land and their livelihoods that they may have had been there for generations. So, and and then if you take that water away from which I think is I think it's a bit um, why Victoria's kind of got a bit of a hold off on the the Murray Darling Basin Plan at the moment because if you take that water away from the regions, then the regions collapse. And so how do you keep investing in the regions if they don't have water allocation? So it's, there's this whole social challenge as well as the environmental one. Perhaps that's why they're really trying to focus on tourism as well yeah, and, exactly. and building up the tourism economy. But just like significant wetlands across the Murray-Darling Basin, our Edith Vale Seaford wetlands is also a Ramsar-registered yeah. wetland under the 1985 Ramsar Convention. Pretty cool. It's amazing. We've talked about this before in the conversation with Jan van Skyk on this program. But listeners, once again, it basically just means that we have a really important international obligation to protect these wetlands that transcends all federal policy because there's really significant and some endangered migratory bird species that fly all over the world and come past and visit us. Yep. How Um, lucky. I know. It's really cool. Um, And it's such a... Um, it's such a yeah a, a wonderful natural asset to have, and um, the, the the bird life. I was walking along the wetlands yesterday, and there were turtles. It was so cute. I saw two or three turtles. It's, yes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just yeah, we're so lucky. It, it would provide so much biodiversity um, for for this whole region, and it's just a yeah fantastic like linear um, water feature and park that yeah goes for so many kilometres. We're so lucky. If you could uh, wave your magic pencil, wave, wave your magic pencil of design over the Edith Fell wetlands, what, what would you do to improve it? What, ad- what additions? I, when I stroll along that path, I, sometimes I see a swale with not much in it and just mud tracks and I know the local, local kids in Melbourne water are butting heads on the dirt bike jumps through that swale. I think, could, could, we, could we improve that area? Oh, I think there's... Look, I, I think it's a it's a pretty good feature and um, the, what we have at the moment, but there's always opportunity to improve it. Um, some of the things – so I, I, the kids love that area. Like through COVID, they loved building bike jumps and stuff and it's kids of all ages and I personally wonder whether we can formalise that for them, put a boundary around it and say you can have that and or um, Melbourne Water need to go to the schools and – and have an education piece there around why they can't do that and let's redirect them somewhere else, give them somewhere else to go. So I think there's there's something that can be done there. We could certainly put more wetlands all up the top and I think there are some projects that are looking at that. Like the, the creek is quite beautiful um, at the mouth, the Mordialic Creek, but then as it comes round towards the wetland, it's um, not very accessible to the public. So I think, you know, what... Um, what our water authority, our water authorities are focusing on now is um, they used to concrete line channels, and that's great for flooding because it get moves waterways, it moves water really quickly out to the sea. But now what they're trying to do is remove those concrete channels and naturalise the creek. Um, Melbourne Water calls it reimagining your creek. Sydney Water calls it naturalising. But it's a thing that people are doing where you can create um, environments where people can come and stop and sit and enjoy the waterway. And so I'd love to see that at the top end of the wetland and formalising the areas for the kids where they can go. Um, I think in some areas we need a lot more shade. Like it's quite hot during the summer. 
So, you know, that whole thing about uh, those big, tall, established trees that will, um, you know, reduce the heat urban. Urban heat gain, yeah, yeah. supporting our urban forestry strategy. Yeah, and I mean, so it's, there's biodiversity, there's temperature cooling, there's so many different benefits to it. So I think, yeah, definitely some tree planting, formalising some areas. I don't know if we need more formal um, tracks going through it, to, but I, I'm, I don't know about that because it's... Yeah, I quite like the goat tracks as well that people create, you know, going for – it's quite a bit wild. I really like that as well. So More of the informal fun. Yeah. Yeah, so I think there's, yeah, heaps to do and, um, you know, it, whether there's more sporting facilities, obviously it's a floodway, so it will flood. But I think if there's more sporting facilities, we do need some more like that, but – only if you can do it without impacting the floodway as well. I want to ask about those reimagining projects. If they remove the concrete channels uh, and sort of rewild the um, mm. rain garden, basically, right? It's, it becomes a massive rain, gar- rain garden. Oh no, no. Um, so there are probably you, you can create that as part of it, but it, it actually becomes a creek. And okay. you, so in the case of the Mooney Ponds project. Um, which the state government put $5 million towards, which is why it's a viable project because they got funding Um, because the chain of ponds, the mini ponds chain of ponds group got that funding. So that's great. Um, And I think the federal government committed more again in the last last election to that particular project. So they just take out the wing walls of the concrete, um, leave the base in and they just put rocks over the top and up the side and then you try to create a natural waterway through it and you excavate areas out so that you can create some ponds where there's the slower moving water and so and then the, it's about bringing the paths down to the water as well so it's about creating it's as much landscape design as as compared to waterway design so you're just trying to make sure that the water can still move through there without causing flooding upstream so the water's got to be able to move through there but you want to be able to get people to connect to there and so Melbourne Water did a great thing in with that project and they ran a cultural values session with Wurundjeri to try to get them to embed some cultural values in it. Wurundjeri are really resource constrained and there are lots of projects like this going on yeah. but the doors open to um, for them when they're ready and they've got time to you know you can build eel traps in the rocks in some areas or you know um, there are opportunities to have some signage along the paths and stuff to just help educate people about the cultural values of the area. Fantastic. Mm. How, how wonderful. I'm just I'm imagining how, how beautiful all these creeks and waterways can become and particularly it feels like Elwood might be a good candidate as oh, well. There's yep. concrete kind of graffiti walls really. Yeah. Which have their own urban value to skater and alternative sport communities but... I'd love to see those revegetated. Oh, I think there's so many opportunities. It's just it's a it's a funding, I guess, um, gap, <laughs> really. Um, but there is research that t- says obviously um, water authorities we are the customers, so there is a customer willingness to pay for this. There are the they are doing research around that that demonstrates that we we do want these assets and we're prepared to pay for them. So I think it's around coming up with that program that um, allows funding because the Mooney Ponds project, it's, you know, five, seven million dollars and it's yeah, 350 totally. metres of creek and there's kilometres and kilometres of it. 
So I think if we can find a streamlined way of designing these these um, these naturalised projects where you're not maybe removing all the concrete, you're just removing some and trying to naturalise it, then then that's good because yeah, there, there are kilometres hundreds of kilometres of concrete line channels around Melbourne. It's quite confronting when you think yeah. about it that way actually. And once you see it um, and you see a concrete line channel and it might just flow through a park and you're like, why is that like that? And it's fenced off and you're just like, that could be a 200 metre stretch of beautiful waterway that people can connect to. And then a gorgeous bridge over it. Yeah. Could be so, so many, so many different things. But rewilding these moments and... Um, I- increasing our urban canopy, our biodiversity. Yeah. Th- these are all things we regularly talk about as being super important to a, a resilient climate future. And yet everyone forgets the stormwater and the surface water and the groundwater. Yeah. So stormwater is a, a huge um, problem. I um, mean, water is a problem. Stormwater um, is a big problem and as we develop more land we create more stormwater so whether that's infilling in infill development in around where we are so it's quite established or a greenfield development out in the in the outer suburbs where they're converting a whole area of green pasture and they're clearing it and putting in houses and you just generate so much more water so it's a big challenge that um, developers and water authorities are having to, to I guess, um, really tackle at the moment and it's it's a huge... And councils too. Yeah, councils as well. So... Um, I think we need to really dig into why that happens because I think listeners may not know that land, bare land, natural land, greenfield even, pasture absorbs water, whereas yeah. as soon as you pave it, where is that water going? Yeah. So as soon as you change a land use, um, so, it, yeah, if you change any kind of green land and put a path or um, a house and anything, you increase the the, um, the hard surfaces and so water can't flow into the ground. It can't infiltrate and it will just hit that surface and, and run off. And so... And our stormwater, you know, infrastructure has to be designed really big to accommodate those big storms, but they can't do it too big. So, you know, that's why we get flooding like we did um, last night because it's just too much rain for our stormwater network. But I did walk to the wetlands after that rain yesterday. It was fine. It was a little bit wet, but not anywhere like the streets on the way up. Sucks it up like a sponge. Yeah, it is. So um, those big green areas are really important and we've got to balance them with our hard surfaces so that, um, you know, we can allow that water to seep into the ground. And so that's the challenge um, that people are, where the industry is grappling with at the moment is we generate um, stormwater and so how, what do we do with it? And so we're trying to kind of create some permeable areas on every house block and whether it's rainwater tanks and then rain gardens or grass, you know, and so you create that area so that it can actually seep in. And then they have stormwater harvesting um, schemes where they actually harvest that stormwater in a wetland and, and a pond and you can use that to irrigate. Um, you can use that to irrigate whether it's open space or maybe you can use it even in your house for non-drinking water 
kind of demands. And every bit of permeable pa- paving helps. I think people shouldn't get deflated about it that it has to every, be an urban level solution. You can do this in your own garden. Yeah, every house needs to manage it in their own garden um, as well. So I think, yeah, putting the least amount of concrete and most amount of grass is good. And a rainwater tank, why not? We got a text message in saying streets are head together and there's a hyperlink that's come through. I'm not sure I'm able to open that. So if texter, if you're listening, why don't you send us through a, a question via text and we'll ask Lou. Okay. Always, always good to have people participating and listening and we love that. So it's also episode 23, listeners. Thank you so much for being along with me for the journey and I'll read out the text line number for you. It's 0493213831. Send us through your questions if you've got them. What, what were some of the other uh, key features or big ideas part of that Mooney Ponds project? And I think it's important. We often talk about precedents. They're very important in architecture, but I think they're very important in any sort of urban development in Australia because you always need evidence to back up any great ideas. <laughs> yeah. This is a really interesting project because it's quite high up in the catchment and so there's not a lot of room either side. And so the biggest thing that I've learnt out of this is um, it's got to be a landscape-led design. So we need landscape architects to actually lead it. It's about looking at the whole where this particular water asset or water feature sits within the broader precinct. So by that I mean what else is around it and how do people access it and are there walking paths, are there roads, you know, what and... and Bike paths, public transport. Exactly. So this Mooney Ponds, um, this reach uh, that was, that's been, it's under construction now so it hasn't been finished yet, I don't think. Um, there's a big sporting facility with a pool on one side of the creek. There's a primary school on the other side of the creek. There's a, um, a shared use path, which means it's for bikes and so high traffic and it's part of, um, Melbourne's like urban bike network. Um, and it's also on the other side of the creek, it's got a slower moving, like a, um, path as well just it's gravel so designed just for walkers and it's got a few bridges um that connect both sides I guess it's um probably a few a few hundred meters apart so it's pretty it was a pretty easy site to be able to say if you revitalize this area you've got communities from both sides coming to access it and it was pretty easy wins for the politicians hey yeah and so um but I think yeah primary school like people Families come from both sides of the river and they'll just park on one side and walk across to the primary school. And we also, in this particular area, we had a little bit more space than we did further down. So there was, um, you know, I'm talking five, ten metres. It's not huge amounts of space. So it was very, very constrained area, this one. A texter has asked, should the rail yard be moved at Morty Creek? Oh, yeah, see, this is where it... Um, it inter it all interrelates with transport as well. I don't know where they could move it to, um, but it was there's a huge opportunity there. Um, I think to to improve that whole area on that side of the creek as well. And yeah, that I'm 
I don't I don't have a comment on that because I think it's it's a, it's actually you just have to there are so many different stakeholders in this when you're talking about these projects and you have to balance everyone's needs. So for example, the costs associated with doing that may be prohibitive and you might be better off spending that money on actually investing in the land that's available. I wonder about whether studies in the future will look at the return on investment and the social benefit because I imagine the health and the of users and the community and therefore the reduced strain on the public health system is just exponential as a result of doing these quite basic things. Yeah. So um, I don't know all the numbers but Sydney Water are doing – in Western Sydney they've got a lot of development happening. Um, they've been able to prove the business case with all these social benefits. It will save them so much money in the long run by having an integrated water management strategy and doing development – in with um, using, so stormwater to supply houses with all the non-drinking water uses. Um, they've got recycled water that they're using as well. So huge stormwater harvesting schemes, um, parkland cities, street trees that have been irrigated and, you know, trying to, like water is at the heart of this design and the business case um has been stacked up because of all those social benefits, the health benefits, the social benefits, the um, yeah, the reduced uh, the energy reduced energy because the temperature is cooler. They say it'll be up to five degrees cooler. Absolutely, yes. Mm. Cities can be up to ten degrees hotter yeah. as a result of uh, perpetual concrete from the urban heat island effect. Yeah. So yeah, trees are a huge um, a huge benefit really. To, to for everyone, I think. We've had another question come in from Cara Graham. Thank you, Cara. What is the best solution for the stormwater that flows into the bay after big storms? Oh, this is a great question because yeah. I'm really upset I because we're swimming today. Mm. And I regularly this upset after every storm. I know, you really wait a while, don't you? Wait a yeah. few days. Um, thanks, Cara. Good question. Um, so... There are some really good examples of this along the beach where the stormwater drains into the sand dune, behind the sand dune. So it captures um, the – so the stormwater captures in this rain garden, it captures all the litter and then the water just slowly infiltrates through the sand into the groundwater into the sea. So that's the process. It slows the whole process down. We need that at the end of every drain. Every drain needs to flow into a natural kind of, I guess, rain garden or – just, a biofilter. Yeah, a biofilter, yeah. And, and how clean does it come out at the end? It, it, say in a perfect world we were draining into biofilters and rain gardens. Could I swim after a storm? That's um, – I reckon it's – so you would filter – I'm just thinking through this. You would filter out a lot of, a lot of stuff because it would take probably a day or two to, um, to filter under the sand in the beach and – that's going to be enough time to get rid of a lot of viruses and things like that. Whether it gets rid of nutrients and that, I'm not entirely sure, but um, it would definitely, like, it's like passing through a sand filter for a day or two. So it would actually have huge benefits. Most things with viruses, it just needs um, time for them to die off. And a bit of UV as well. UV is certainly helpful. It's probably not going to get that enough of that, but it'll, it'll die off in the groundwater. So yeah, it does. So I think, yeah, more of them. I walked along the beach this morning and there's huge erosion kind of – it was quite um, 
treacherous <laughs> between the slippery seaweed and the crevices from the drains that don't flow into the biofilters. So I think um, just more examples of those would be really great for our bay. Would that be complicated to retrofit in existing areas such as here in the Long Beach? I don't think it – look, I don't think it would but because um, they just stop the drains earlier and create that biofilter in the dune. But – I'm not sure how many there are and there are probably heaps. <laughs> so maybe the council might not want me saying that. <laughs> well, this is this is Radio Caram, Radio Architecture. <laughs> we, we have all, all sorts of conversations where we, we imagine our, our future. We imagine what, uh, what, what kind of a world we want to live in. Yeah. I'd love for the bay to be just as clean after a storm as it is before it. Yeah, and it certainly would be good. It would improve litter and everything, wouldn't it? Yeah, and none of that washing up and then back onto the beaches, mm. which in turn reduces council's maintenance expenditure because the beach ferries are vacuuming up the sand every couple of days. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be maintenance associated with those biofilters though as well. So, um, but it would be, you would think they could program that a little bit better than the than the beaches. It makes me um, wonder about natural swimming pools and it's a little sidestep really for my own indulgence because I'm, I'm always quite fascinated about natural swimming pools and this is my rare opportunity to ask someone about it. Are they a bit of a gimmick or they are actually something one can establish and maintain? What do you mean a natural swimming pool? A, a natural swimming pool that is a pond basically with a biofilter, a system of biofilters through it where you're not chlorinating, you're not salinating the water you're not even some 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 pools have a filter pump to create a little waterfall and recirculate it yeah um but then the water naturally maintains its own ecosystem and you have clear water swimming is this just a gimmick i see on social media or is it i reckon it would be totally possible so there are hundreds of um stormwater wetlands all around melbourne that manage our stormwater flow and so that at the water that's flowing to the bay is because they've got um, water quality objectives that they're trying to to meet. And so it would be exactly the same principles. So the water, if you had a series of wetlands that could treat the water and remove the nutrients, and then the last one is where you would do your swimming. Okay, excellent. That's very exciting. Totally, yeah, totally feasible. Back to my Pinterest fantasies yep. then. There's so <laughs> many gorgeous backyard landscaping projects that, that have a – these bodies of water that people build on their properties. And you might just need a bit more room. Oh, yeah. No, the room <laughs> we don't have. But that I can I can hope and I can, I can absolutely fantasise uh, about that one. Um, but in terms of thinking about the future and being prepared um, for the climate variations and changes and threats that we are we're, we're to experience – What's the number one thing that you would do from a water management perspective to better better prepare us? This is my um, personal interest at the moment, but I think we need to think about all the different sources of water that we have available to use. Um, so it's integrated water management. And um, where you think of stormwater, we think of the recycled water that's produced from our treatment plants and then the water that we drink as well. So at the moment we have three separate networks. Um, we have a, a large network to accommodate the stormwater. 
we have a recycled water network that um, feeds farms and things around um, around Melbourne. Um, there are a few developments maybe that have a third pipe and that's supplied by recycled water. And then we have our drinking water network that comes from all the reservoirs and, and treatment um, and yeah, from the reservoirs in, in the Yarra. We need to integrate them. We need to we need to be able to value our our stormwater um, and reuse it. We need to find more uses for recycled water. Ultimately, you know, we'll be like most cities in the world. I hope where we will drink all this water, so we can capture our stormwater. We can we can produce more recycled water, and it can go straight into our reservoirs, or it can go straight into um, our our drinking water supply. So. That as an idea of uh, drinking recycled water or drinking uh, stormwater probably really freaks people out. It, it does, yeah. So um, most people around the city do it. Uh, so most the, there are lots of cities around the world that do it. It's it's very normal practice, I think, in a lot of other areas. We obviously don't have policy that supports it at the moment. That will change because there is, um, you know, the strategy for Melbourne to meet our water supply. Um, over the next 50 years we're short a lot and it's got to come from somewhere and so I think we need to be maybe a little bit less precious about that and really value our water and not just let it run out to the sea if um, you know, if we can capture it and reuse it. Is there a middle ground, for example, can new constructions be plumbing that your irrigation for the garden and your outdoor water use, it's all treated and cleaned and still of equal comparable quality recycled water or stormwater or flushing toilets is recycled and stormwater. Yeah, so that that's that's almost where we're at now. So we can – but we've got too much recycled water so we can produce a lot more than we what we need. So we do need it mandated more um, in houses to, so that we reuse – we use recycled water for those non-drinking water uses. So I think there's there's a role for stormwater here as well. Um but yeah, that, that's a that's a, a challenge as well um, to be able to store those volumes and and treat them. We need large areas of land where there's um, you know these um, like natural wetland treatment trains to be able to capture the stormwater and treat it. And then, um, but you, the the benefits of that is that you get this beautiful blue green kind of parkland area that you can we. It would be a valuable natural asset to us. We'd be able to walk around it. It'd be like our wetlands here. Most people think they're smelly places, but they're no, actually parklands. They're parklands. And there are lots of these wetlands around Melbourne and there's lots of work being done now where we're, where people, where Melbourne water is, they'll be looking at how these um, wetlands are functioning and they look for um, livability improvements. So they go and talk to their local councils and local Indigenous people and put paths around them. And so there's they are real community assets as well. We've just had a question come in from Sue McKenzie. Thank you, Sue. She says, a question for Lou. Should everyone get a water tank and which is more sustainable above or below ground? Thanks, Sue. Good question. Um, I don't have a rainwater tank because um, where we are at the moment, we don't even have any stormwater plumbing it just goes into the sand so I don't actually have that much room either and so I would only be able to get a small water tank that I could use to water my garden so I could do that but um, 
I haven't, I won't, I don't think I'll do it in the future because all my stormwater goes into the ground anyway now and we don't have any, many hard surfaces. But I think a rainwater tank for most people is great and definitely we should be using it for if you, you know, if you, whatever size block of land you're on, get the biggest that you can and um, use it for garden watering or any non-drinking water uses. It's great having it hooked up to the house. It's, so, about, it's about capturing that water so yeah. it doesn't go into stormwater, it doesn't run off on concrete. That's it. And it, you're keeping it out of the creeks, which is really important, and reusing it. In terms of above ground, I think would be more, econo- yeah, more economical. But then, you know, if you don't have space and you've got money, um, maybe putting it below ground is, is also an option for those people. It's probably much easier also to maintain for yourself a, yep. above ground as long as you're not having any corrosion risk but you should be able to do it all in plastic if you are by yep. the coast. So be be careful of metal, Sue, if you are um, here on the Long Beach within five kilometres of the coastline even because the salt is very full on. Yes, it is. <laughs> lots, lots of wonderful questions we're getting tonight. All Many many of them are about what practical things people can do because I think everyone wants to do better, wants to do better for the environment, yep. especially if there's some easy wins that they can have. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I think there's um, a lot of good incentives and I think, yeah, a lot of interest for people to be actually thinking about this, yeah, on their own kind of block of land, which is great. And awareness of also the change that water can cause for better or worse onto your building and onto your building fabric and onto your site because if you don't manage it your, or manage the wetness or the dampness, your building could be a risk, the structure could be a risk. So there's a lot of maintenance responsibilities. Yeah, that that's right. Up. And I think, yeah, if people can keep their gutters clean and things like that in terms of and understanding what their flooding risks are, particularly when we get storms like what we had yesterday, and if you think that you are at risk, then, you know, I don't know, I'm getting prepared for that as well. Ultimately, there are people that live in flood zones and just have to manage that. And um, they will be aware if they are living in a flood zone. But, yeah, it's it's um, it's a challenge. It will be an ongoing challenge for some people as we get more variable rainfall events like what, like last night. In, in Australia, I'm not sure. Sh- are you aware of any situations where um, communities have been encouraged to leave flood zones? So I believe Lismore is actually rebuilding even though they're in a floodplain. Yeah, that was amazing what happened though with them three times in a row. And so Sydney has just been, well, New South Wales has just been completely slammed by three La Ninas in a row and so much rain and all of that falls else like in all over the catchments and then it flows down a river and if people are alongside that river then their you know homes are taken along the way we probably don't have the same um i mean i guess in there are some areas where like elwood would be one where it's it's um flooding but so the People's insurances in, in Edith Vale have uh, very much yeah. gone up as well from the risk assessment. Yeah, exactly. So that will happen. And 
um, everyone's insurances will go up. And I know that's happened to some of my colleagues in Sydney. They were flooded last year and, you know, their, their insurances have gone up massively as well. So I think um, people will just have to get prepared for it. And if, um, you know, I don't, I don't know though, I, I can't, I'm, I'm finding it hard to imagine like people, us not being able to come up with an engineering solution and asking people to, compared to asking people to relocate, like you'd like to think that there's an engineering solution. Um, I, I always believe that where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. It's not my area of expertise. No, it's, and look, to be fair, it's not mine. I'm not a flooding expert by any means. So, um, but I do, I do know that there will be more flooding and, you know, and, and in this area where we're in, the the sea level will rise. Um, and with that, it, it impacts all the low-lying areas. So, um, you know, all around the Edithal the wetlands, the the water table will rise with the sea level. That's what happens. So um, areas that maybe weren't affected by flooding, flooding will be. And, yeah, I'm, I don't actually know what the solution is though. People forget that symbiosis. They think the sea levels will just rise and, the, 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 you know, their beach will come closer. But it's actually reciprocal with the water table as well and that's the water level that exists in the ground level. And so people, you can pump the where you have water but you'll just be drawing more in. So you can drain some areas and it might be possible to do that in some areas but ultimately we're limited by the sea level. That's the furthest that you can drain to. And then any any raising of the water table or any changes there affects salinity, it affects soils, it yeah. affects agriculture. And so I think how it's managed in these greenfield areas where you've got a new development happening is they'll build the area up. So if you've got shallow groundwater, you actually build, put, bring more fill in and build the whole area up. So you, you, that's how you manage it in a greenfield area. But I'm not sure what the options are in brownfield areas. What sort of buffers do they usually apply when they build up? I think it's all around um, – so there's like a one in a hundred year flood event. That will be a mapped extent. And I think your floor level has to be above that. But the one in a hundred might come more than one in a hundred years. Like Lismore. Um, like Lismore. And it might come more frequently in future years and we don't know that because we are living in like unprecedented times. So climate change is happening and we're living it now. So we don't really know what's coming. Unfortunately, not everyone's on board with that idea. But to those I'd say, well, what's the harm in finding better solutions? There is none. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the harm is that you might be investing in something that isn't economic, but I think that there's enough information out there to make to um, so that invest to actually demonstrate that investment in this is economic and will benefit people's lives, regardless if you believe in climate change or not. Do you think there's a value for the Queenslander house type construction that? It learns to live with a floodwater where they're, they're basically on stilts on little legs. The floodwater rips through underneath. Everyone floats around for a few weeks. Yeah, maybe that'd be um, that'd 
certainly change our whole area, wouldn't it? That'd be great. That's a, that's the solution, I guess. Then, isn't it? As the humidity migrates down, the architecture changes to to reflect that with outdoor sleeping oh, and rooms to, and we verandas. Have, we don't have to move to Queensland to get that weather. That's nice. Yeah, all, all <laughs> my neighbours who do their runaway May, yeah, and, and go up to Queensland in uh, in May and June for a few months, yeah. and I don't see them until sort of spring racing carnival begins, and then yeah. they reemerge. We can just um, yeah, that that weather can come to us. That'd be nice. I'd like that. <laughs> there, there is always a way, and there's people already across the world who live in really extreme climates, yeah, and and really harsh climates. But even um, all around Amsterdam, I'm just thinking like there are lots of areas that have got really low lying land, and they've managed to kind of save stuff. So I think there are engineering solutions out there that can help mitigate this impact and maybe it is just putting stilts on your house as well it's important for these solutions to also be proactive and not retrospective and not at the 11th hour yeah exactly which is why it's harder in these areas where it's already developed um but i guess in the in the greenfield areas um where new development's happening this all needs to be managed at, at the outset and i know they're trying but it's challenging it's a real challenge because it does add more money it, it makes the development cost more as well and then that influences the cost of housing which influences how much people you know everyone, a, yeah it does hurt everyone's back pockets that's exactly where i always talk about intention in any sort of project being really critical and really interrogating what's what's your main motivation for doing it? Like are you building these homes for people to live in and for it to be for high quality and long term and comfortable and low operational expenditure so people can, can live there or are you building it for profit? And unfortunately I find a lot of these greenfield, new estate, mass bulk developments uh, trying to sell people the kind of mid-20th century suburban dream of having a quarter acre block, a cup of tea with a neighbour over the back fence. Have you seen how small some of those blocks are? They're not quarter acres. They're like some of them are, I don't know. Even less. Boundary two, to boundary too. Yeah, they're 200 square metres, some of them. Like um, it's not it's not that suburban dream that, you know, from, from the old days. It's you're all kind of jammed together and it's profit driven. But it's, it's, it's hot. It, but it's also around providing affordable housing. So, um, you know, people do want that people are buying these places, so they do want them. So I think how do you, how do you, like it's two-edged sword. Yeah, there's definitely been a, a market engineering sort of d- d- social demand, that social demand to live in a suburban home yeah. has in a way been enge- engineered by the market for the market. And we've discussed on this program about, very livable three, four-bedroom apartments or smaller townhouses or duplexes that give you the exact same number of bedrooms but even more use, even more quality, and you get to be where you want to live. So from a housing planning perspective, we're not even using our inner inner closer rings as well as we could be. And it's, I mean, I think good design goes a long way to improving everyone's lifestyle. So... Um, I I completely agree and I think, um, you know, having an intention for an area when you build it and like what Sydney is doing in their, the western areas, they've said we want it to be a parkland city, we want it to be this, that. And, they've you had know. to ban dark roofs if I'm not mistaken though. Yeah, 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 I imagine they have. And 
but they're 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 designing their whole scheme around a stormwater harvesting program, and and that will supply all the houses. So the problem, the catchment, um, the development that causes the problem, it's generating the stormwater. It's inherently providing a solution for it as well. It becomes the supply for that area, the water supply. So I think that's kind of cool. So it's actually a renewable resource or yep. a sustainable resource in that way that yep. it replace that it is replacing itself. Yep. And it's it's creates habitat. It improves biodiversity. There's the temperature effects. It, um, peoples will be healthier. There'll be parklands because you can get outside and be connected. And there's obviously all the water bodies as well. So I think if you have that intention for what you want, and um, that's embedded in policy in the strategy at the outfront, then that goes a long way. That's absolutely right, and a thousand percent spot on about good design improving mm. everybody's lives because there is a flow on effect in the social benefit like we talked about tonight there's the flow on effect in the urban quality you just live in a much nicer area but even good design on a small personal level on the small suburban home research has shown that for every dollar you spend on architects fees there's a return of $11.30 on the improved capital value I'm not surprised to hear that at all. Good design is just it's easy to easy to spot and it makes life living like it makes everything easier. I People think know well. when they have it. Yeah. And don't quite don't quite always know that it's what they're missing why they don't have it. Yeah, totally. And I think um those so there's the design at the you know in the house that you're living in but then in your local community as well and there's all this talk about the 20 minute 20 minute neighborhood and how far can you walk in 20 minutes and what do you have that's accessible within that and having a park and having a waterway. We're lucky we've got two, a wetland and a beach, um, very unique. But I think, um, you know, whereas if you're in the middle of the suburbs, people might only have a park. And so I think, yeah, just understanding how we can connect and create more of these green spaces and connect them is is good. Absolutely. Well, I'm mindful of the time. I do want to ask my last question. It's what gives you hope? Um, there's actually a lot to be hopeful for right now. I think um, there's some really, really good policy around cultural values. I'm loving how much we're um, trying to have the conversation around reconciliation and embedding cultural values in in our day-to-day life and the design of our waterways and our parklands and the recognition that's going there. So I think there's hope there. Um, I also think that there's where as a in the water industry and and everything that we've talked about here in terms of how it affects our the communities and the environment, there's lots of amazing things going on and lots of people pushing the boundaries to do things differently. And I think, you know, it's it's all edging towards us being a more healthy and resilient community and environment as well. So I love the fact that we get to talk about this and that, um, that you know, that everyone gets to benefit from it as well. What's the number one project that, we, that coming up on the horizon or that's really exciting for you that we should be looking out for and, you know, even taking to our local members or local councillors as a precedent? What's 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 exciting? What's what's coming up? Local, I don't know. I or think Australian, Victorian, overseas. <laughs> I don't. I I think in Australia it is what's happening in in Western Sydney. Like it's a first where they're 
um, thinking about the design of a city like this and really pushing hard for an integrated approach to to managing their water. So I think that's super exciting. I think locally, you know, if we can get more investment in this wetland where you know, and it, and people interested in it and using it in terms of recreationally without, you know, protecting still the values and just, um, yeah, I don't know, I, I think like we've obviously got the Edith Vale Collective there investing in the streets and I think it's just about getting people outside to enjoy their, you know, the, the streetscapes, the parklands and the wetlands and, um, and having an environment where people can do that is, is good. And we live in a very passionate and very motivated community. Yeah. People are very, very keen uh, if only, you know, when they when given the opportunity to participate or direct direct their efforts and, and their yeah. thoughts. It's all yeah. There. I think we've all got similar values and, and it's um, even probably more broadly as a broader community in Melbourne and in Australia, I think everyone does value similar things and, you know, having um, – that open space to be able to go and enjoy is is good and clean water to drink. We're very lucky. We have the best drinking water in the yeah. world. And I don't think it would be ruined if we chose to have a more integrated approach to managing it. I'm definitely I'm definitely open to uh, mixed sources. Yeah. I, I understand the theory of that like chemically it's exactly the same thing once they're done cleaning it. But uh, maybe maybe we'll check back in next yep. year and, and see if I've come on board for the for the oh, journey. Maybe you got to put two cups in front of me, yep. and, we'll, and we'll do a taste test. <laughs> oh, and um, it'll probably take more than um, it'll probably take more than a year. I think it's a journey <laughs> that you go on with a community over a decade to try to really educate everyone and talk about it more. And the more we talk about it, the more we'll normalise it and. I think um, I think it, it's it's the way of the future, though. It's got to be over the next, you know, in a climate resilient future, it has to be. As is the embedding of cultural values and yeah. reimagining these spaces, which which feels really exciting to me. Because how much how much more interesting is it to know more and to feel more connected to where you are than just a concrete drain. Oh, totally. It's like you can, you've got a space that you can go and enjoy, a destination that you can ride your bike to or something where you can walk your dog along. And I think um, we have some parts that it's done really, really well and been able to um, use those. But I think there's an opportunity to really expand that and connect it more. And whether it's improve the connection all through waterways and Brayside Park and having these, you know, fabulous like bike paths that are um, all connected by these beautiful waterways because it is actually all waterways and naturalising areas in all wherever a water a water, wherever a channel goes through a waterway I think or a park sorry um, being able to yeah, naturalise that and allow people to stop and connect with the water because everyone will feel better for doing that if they have a place where they can stop and connect with water and nature. I think that's a very beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Lou. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrum studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hello, I'm Con. And I'm Stav. And, and we're Edinaki. You're listening to Radio Karam. Radio Karam.